I'm sitting in my home studio here in Silver Lake in Los Angeles, and I have been very busy. We finished the recording of Five Billion in Diamonds back in November, and I mixed that in December and January. And then I went in the studio and finished recording a new garbage record in uh, February and March. We finished tracking that the day before LA went to lockdown. So um, I thought we would have that done by May 1st, but because of the uh, quarantine, the little the finished bits we had to get done with vocals and a few overdubs and mixing stuff all had to be done via file sharing. So that really slowed the process down. But anyway, we're done with that. I found the first month, like my head was in a fog, and I talked to a lot of, the, a lot of other artists, I think, felt the same. Well, we have all this time, but everybody felt discombobulated. You know, None of us have ever had this kind of thing happen in my generation, you know. So, And then about a month in, probably I would say the end of April, I just got really busy and, and, and found that focusing on music was the one thing that has kept me sane. So, And besides finishing Garbage and getting the 5 Billion of Diamonds album ready, I did another track with Silver, some pickups. I did a lot of pro bono music for some political ads that were all nonpartisan, basically get out the vote. Um, I did some tweaky stuff. Uh, for Native Instruments, doing a Butchvig drum software thing. It's like an old-school drum machine that you can play on your computer. That was totally fun because it was super lab rat, tweaky, nerdy stuff with me running snare samples through all these effects plugins and stuff. But, but as I said, I'm lucky that I've had this space to keep working. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many musicians I know who make a living on touring, and that's been completely cut off from them. So this has been a really hard year, really hard year. Are you somebody who throws yourself into work when times get difficult? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't really have any hobbies. And uh, if I start to sit around and think too much about the weight of the world or whatever that may be, uh, it can get a bit daunting. So, yeah, work for me is therapy. I mean, it's music. I've been doing it my whole adult life, um, and, and I, I'm, I just that's what I immerse myself in. How do you get to this point in your life and not have any hobbies? Is it just that music is, is all encompassing <laughs> for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't even consider it work, really. I just It's what I do. I, I just, I'm constantly listening to music, making music, editing music, uh, collaborating with someone. It's what makes me tick, really. I should, my wife keeps telling me I should get a hobby, but uh, I don't have one yet. <laughs> and I suspect the fact that you, perhaps not evenly, but that you split your time between, you know, being in bands and performing and producing on the other side of things is enough to keep things fresh and interesting relative to somebody who is just basically doing the same thing day in, day out. Yeah, and, and, and you hit on a point there. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm in a band or multiple bands. I've been in bands my whole life in some form or another. And that, in its in a sense, is a, is a really clubby, little click, collaborative thing. Every band has its own unique identity, and then I can step away from that, and I'm a producer, or I have to step away and be objective because I'm not the artist. I'm helping the artist get to their vision. And they're two completely different things. And I'm lucky I can flip between them. Sometimes in the same day, you know, I'll work on some 5 Billion Diamonds music in the morning, then I'll work on a track for somebody else in the, in the night and whatever. And, and I think it's good to, to be able to jump around like that. It keeps it uh, fresh for me, you know, it keeps it interesting. Obviously, when you take performance out of the equation, how different is being a producer in the studio and being a member of a band in the studio? Obviously, there's a fair amount 
not overlap in some of your projects? I can be a multitude of things. I can be a songwriter. I can be a musician. Not even drums. I can play keyboards or guitar or bass. I can order dinner. I can crack a ball of wine. I can make the pot of coffee. I can argue with my bandmates. We can decide it. You know, screw this. Let's watch a movie. Let's turn on a Netflix and watch whatever. You know, it's different as a producer. I have to keep my eye on getting the project done, but more importantly on sort of the mental wherewithal of the band to make sure they're focused, you know, make sure the vibe is cool, everybody's getting along okay. Um, Sometimes I have to coddle them and make them feel good. Sometimes I have to do the opposite and push them to get to an uncomfortable place to get a performance right. Um, A lot of producing with other artists for me is is psychological. I mean, there's a song and sonically what you want it to sound like, but then there's the psychological aspect of how do you get to that point. And uh, so it's it's just a different mindset. It's harder work, actually, producing other artists from my point of view when you're in a band you get a lot of leeway like i said i'm uh, i'm gonna open a bottle of wine right now everybody okay with that everybody's like yeah do it you know so but i love splitting time between both what do you mean by psychological in this context um you know like i suspect that when people go in for the most part bands you're dealing with when they go into the studio obviously the goal is to produce a record i mean is it like pulling teeth sometimes is, is it difficult to actually get them to you know hunker down and, and work on the product well some bands and some artists are very motivated they have kind of a clear idea what they want to do um some are not and some need to be pushed quite a bit and sometimes challenged um to draw something out of them um and then there's dynamics of if it's a band, the multiple musicians or artists in the band, because sometimes they are at odds or having friction between them. And I have to kind of get a read on how to address everybody and make them feel good about what they're doing. Yet at the end of the day, I want to get a great performance and I want the songs to sound great. So there's a lot of like sort of figuring out what the dynamic is and how to talk to people and how to talk to them as a group and how to pull them aside individually as members and talk to them. Um, and as I said, that's a lot more work. I assume in most cases, most of the bands that you're dealing with are pretty well established or been around for a while. So they've been doing this for a while. They've been oftentimes touring in very close quarters. And then all of a sudden you have to like, not only figure out what to do on record, but you have to sort of figure out, I guess, just from kind of talking to them and reading them, what's been going on in their lives. And if you have to do you feel like you're giving people homework assignments? Is it is it that sort of thing? Is it really just like <laughs> letting them know what the deadline is and making sure that a product is finished by then? Well, I you know, I think I used to have to do that more than I do now. When I take on projects these days, and when you know, when I'll sit down and the most important thing is first of all to hear the music, like what you know, what does the music sound like? And then get an idea of what their vision is for this particular record or single, whatever they're working on. But then I also look around and see, okay, who's their management? What label are they on? Are they having problems in the band? Is there strife going on? Are there drug issues? Whatever. And there are red flags that come up. And I honestly try to avoid those because I've worked with some bands in the past that have an insane melodrama and were just extremely difficult to work with. And I don't want to name names, but made some great records under those circumstances under a lot of duress but i try to avoid that you know so um when i pick somebody i want to work with i want to feel like there's a i get an understanding of where they want to go as an artist and understand their vision but there's also i feel there could be some camaraderie and that it could be an interesting and possibly fun process because being in a studio should be fun that's why i go into studios every day when you go in the studio and it's a drag 
That is no good. I assume that for you know several decades, for the most part, in a lot of these cases, it's bands or labels approaching you. Obviously, you've been established for quite some time now. What is that kind of romance process like? What what is that that period like when you're you know really deciding whether or not you want to take this this project on? Well, it's a first date. You know, you're kind of excited, uh, not quite sure what to expect. You're sitting down with the band and meeting them, talking to them in person, or yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I usually I have to do that. I have to sort of get to know what they're like in their psyche and sort of figure out, okay, who kind of is dealing with the bulk of the song arranging or is there a main songwriter? Are there multiple artists? Um, And you could figure out really quickly the dynamic in bands. Mm -hmm. Um, you, You can you can tell the hierarchy, you know, and rarely are bands a democracy. You know, garbage, I have to say, is a democracy, but we're a very dysfunctional democracy. We all produce, we all have opinions, we argue like crazy, but we also, at the end of the day, share a lot of sensibilities, so we kind of get on the same page. But a lot of bands are not that way, and so I have to sort of figure out, if I want something or I need to address an issue, who do I speak to, you know, and that, that just takes a bit of, you know, once you get past the first day, you, you figure that stuff out pretty quick. But there's also, like with solo artists pop singers, hip-hop artists, whatever, there there can be a lot of other people around, like friends, management, publishers, whatever. That, you know, there can be a whole slew of uh, chatter opinions that I try to sort of shut out at the end of the day. You know, I, I want to really focus on what the artist uh, is, is concerned with, you know, what's important to them. Was Garbage always a democracy, or is that something that you've settled into over time? Well, I've known Duke and Steve for 30-plus years. You know, we've been in bands together. We uh, lived in Madison, Wisconsin. Steve and I started a studio, Smart Studios, that was uh, ran for almost 30 years. And uh, when Shirley joined us, she was the outsider. But she was very much on the same page in terms of what we were trying to do sonically and just visually and how we viewed the world. You know, we're... Uh, we share a lot of uh, the same passions for food, books, film. Um, you know, we're all sort of bleeding liberals to a certain extent. Um, so that made it easy, but it took her a while, I think, to feel like she fit into our club. Once we finished the first record, she did not want to go on tour with us. You know, we made the whole record in the studio, and we decided we would go do like six weeks of shows, and that was it. And honestly, I thought, we'll put this garbage record out, and then I'm going to go back to producing full-time. And then their record just kaboom, took off, and we went on tour for, on the first record, damn, it was 18 months, I think we went, went all over the world. And it was crazy, crazy cool fun, really hard work. But that really gelled us, uh, and Shirley really grew into her own as a front person, as a lyricist. You know, she realized I'm the mouthpiece for the band, and uh, and she's really good at it too, by the way. Do you get a sense of when it clicked? When it clicked from being like, "This is the side project," or "This is the project of the you know the Nevermind guy," and Pinocchio became a real boy? I guess. You know, I think it was at the end of the first album, the touring cycle. We knew we had done well; it sold a lot of copies. We'd been all over the world. We were completely exhausted. I mean fried out of our minds and I remember we came to I think the last show was somewhere on the west coast here and we all we met at a hotel I met our manager to talk about whoa what's happened and and sort of figure out a game plan and and almost immediately we as a band had decided we want to start writing songs for the next record even though it, it had taken us almost a year to make the first record and then we were gone for 18 months all of us knew that we wanted to keep that momentum and when we went up to start writing version 2.0 we were in this secluded 
house up in Friday Harbor, north of Seattle, for about a month. And that's when I realized that we are we're our own little band. We're all really close, and we're all kind of on the same wavelength, and we all have a comfort now that we can talk and argue with each other, and uh, and we're all excited to you know, keep pushing forward. As you said earlier, it took surely time to kind of adjust and, and to figure that out. But to you and to the other guys, did it feel like a proper band from the outset? Was was that the plan? Was it just a bunch of friends having fun in the studio? Well, one of the unfortunate things that got quoted in the first record was something like three producers and a girl singer. And that really annoyed the shit out of me because we worked so hard. We played so many shows and we were working together all the time it it made it sound like we had this magic button and we just hired this singer and she sang and then you know and that's not true at all i mean we we worked harder in that first record touring and just trying to establish our identity than most bands that i know who are established and been doing it for a long time and an element of the story that i do like though is that you you saw her on tv one day and we're like that's what we need (laughs) like that's that's a great that's a great position to be in to just be like all right that's that's exactly the element, this woman in, in Scotland, let's fly her out here and have her join the band. Well, you know, the funny thing is we saw her on MTV. I think they played her her band Angelfish once <laughs> on 120 Minutes. They played a song called Suffocate Me. And what we liked about it is she sang really low and understated, and yet it was really intense. Unlike almost all of the grunge singers at the time who were just screaming and trying that they're you know they're passionless like wow you know going really hard. Duke and Steve and I flew over to London and uh, we met her at some posh hotel. Shirley thought we were staying there, so she thought we were pompous you know buttheads. But we we were staying at a, a small nondescript place. But we just clicked that day. We for about three hours we talked about film and music and food and politics and books and culture and everything. Talked very little about music. Like, we'd sent her a couple of the music things we were working on, but we really didn't get into it. We just said, you know, if you're into this, why don't you come over to Wisconsin and we'll, let's let's record some and see what happens. And she said, I'm up for it. And it was a really good meeting. When I left, I thought, like, I think I think she's going to be a good fit. I think it's going to work. And I went to a party with some other producers and engineers in London, and uh, like Alan Mulder, who mixed Siamese Dream with me, and Flood was there. I sat down at this pub to have dinner, and they were all staring at me. And I was like, "What? what's going on, you guys? And they said, have you heard the news? Kurt Cobain is dead. That happened on the same day, the day I met Shirley, and then I heard Kurt died. And so for me, it was like literally a point in my life where, okay, recording in Nirvanic led up to here boom I met this singer and we're starting a band called Garbage that's like phase two and uh, it's a true story it, it, they, I, I met Shirley the day that Kurt died it is one of those things though I, you know I think when I look back at my own life there's probably I could probably count on one hand the moment like these really cinematic moments you know these moments that really just feel like like a crossroads do you get the sense that that one thing for for you personally that one thing kind of compelled you to continue on doing the other well it's funny you know garbage started from me sort of trying to walk away from alternative rock because i just got known for making these big loud rock records and i love doing that but i grew up listening to all different styles of music. I didn't want to get pigeonholed. And by the time Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins happened, I had done a thousand punk rock records, like guitar, bass, drums. I was just sick of it. Uh, I got interested in samplers. I, I fell in love with Public Enemy. The records they were making were so crazy and scary and wild. I was like, how are they doing that? And it was using samplers in the studio and loops and using the mixing board as, as a as an instrument. So I started doing these remixes with Duke and Steve for Depeche Mode and U2 and Nine Inch Nails and Beck and Alas Morissette and whatever, House of Pain. And uh, that template 
is how we started the music for Garbage. So it was right around that time, you know, meeting Shirley and starting Garbage was definitely moving into a different phase. And at the time, I thought, like like I said earlier, like I would go back, we'd make a Garbage record, I would go back to producing full-time. But then Garbage sucked me up for about 10 years. You know, we made a record for a year, we'd tour for 18 months, make a record for a year, tour for 18 months. And that became the focal point of my uh of my music at that you know at that time period has that been a, a defining characteristic of the musical projects that you embark on that you feel like you need to learn something new in order to push yourself in a different direction yeah it's not even so much learn something new it's just i want to feel like the process is interesting uh um <clears throat> so much of recording for me is going into the studio day to day and not knowing exactly what's going to happen. I, I took a lot from my professor, uh, Badia Rahman, when I went to film school at the UW-Madison. He, he kept saying, it is the process. It's not the finished product. You have to be in the moment of the process because that's what art is about. And I, I really feel like that's why I still love going into studios. And, and when, it, when it starts to become predictable, or I feel like it's I'm just going in something I did yesterday, whatever. Then I I get bored with it, and I just feel like I have to do a U-turn or a detour and, and explore some new avenue. So, um, and I've, I guess I've always felt that way. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that a big part of that must be the projects that you pick. I mean, in order for you to continue to keep it fresh, in order for you to, to push yourself and try new things, you need to make sure that you're working with a pretty broad variety of different artists. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of records I've done that kind of fly under the radar, I think are great, but, you know, they don't have the sort of pedigree as Nevermind or, or Garbage or Siamese Dream or the Foo Fighters, whatever. The other day, I was uh, I had to go pick something up for my daughter and was driving in L.A., and somehow, randomly on my phone, this track came up with this band that I produced, uh, Never Shout Never, and the songs are so great on that record. It's dead simple pop songs with minimal production and... It sounded so good. I came home and told my daughter and, and, and my wife, Beth, I goes, I haven't heard this for like uh, four or five years, and it sounded so good. And my, my daughter immediately put it on and was singing all the way through the record, All you know, knows all the songs. And uh, I was like, yeah, damn, that is a good record. Is that a difficult process for you as somebody, again, who has been doing production for so long and obviously has been at the top of this game for such a long time? Is it or can it be difficult for you to sort of step back and do minimal work from the production side? It's hard for me because I like painting with layers and filling in the cracks and and uh, you know I'm guilty of overproducing some records. Uh, the second garbage record probably has too many tracks on it, but at the time that's what we wanted to do. You know, we deliberately wanted to fill in every little oral corner and. and pocket that we could and and we did and uh i still think the record sounds cool i mean it sounds very much of that time period but that's what we intended to do and uh, i have to use restraint on the new garbage record we deliberately forced ourselves to strip some of the songs back it's hard you know because you, you get around and finishing and mixing and i'm like oh, i could hear another instrument come in the second verse here i could hear some other texture here and uh i'm for the most part, I'm, I'm relieved to say that, yeah, we, we kept our mantra on the, on the new album and did strip it back to a, to a certain amount. It sounds like the move from analog to digital is really kind of a, an embarrassment of riches to such a point that you you have to keep yourself in check. Yeah, I mean, the digital world is amazing. I love I'm sitting in front of my Pro Tools rig here, but when I went back and did Wasting Light with the Foo Fighters, we did that analog on tape, and we did it in Dave's garage, and it made me realize the great thing about analog is not so much the sound, is that it's all about performance. You really have to commit to what you're doing. 
so many musicians know now they can do one take and it can be fixed. You can fix the pitch, fix the timing. You know, even if something's out of tune, a guitar, or whatever, you can probably fix it in, in a, with a digital editing system. So um, it's taken away a little bit of that drive that, uh, like, you know, the musicians, like in the 50s, 60s, even the 70s, really had to be on their A game. You know, if you were going into a studio, you had to really play the best possible you could or you have to sing the best as you can and um i still try to remember that you know from time to time i don't get obsessed over uh spending three weeks on a kick drum track anymore garbage is more likely to if we're recording something we'll go hey is that mic on back there just turn that on push it over by the drum that's fine you know we're people think we're super meticulous about that not really i'm more meticulous about like I said, with some of the textures and things in songs, transitions, and, and sort of emotionally how a vocal is connected to a track, I do get obsessed with certain things every now and like a feel. Like I'll be listening to the drums and bass in a verse and go, something just feels weird to me on it. And, and then I'll start shifting. Let's shift the bass a little behind the beat and see how that feels. And I'll go, that's pretty cool. Let's Now let's shift the snare drum back a little bit behind the kick drum and see how that feels uh, i kind of like it now let's shit the bass forward a little bit and see how, you know stuff like that but it's all closing my eyes and trying to just feel it versus um looking at a screen and zooming in and, and measuring you know in, in uh micrometers if it's ahead or behind and, and people do that you know they you, you can analyze things using graphs and and plugins so you don't even have to use your ears anymore but i still like to use my ears and sort of trust my gut my sensibility do you get the feeling that a that a producer should have a a sound or a signature or you know that it's important for bands to know that when they work with you they're getting a certain kind of vibe or aesthetic you know i i don't know that i have a certain sound i guess if you compared some of the records i did in the 80s it's smart they probably have a sound that was probably limited to the gear we had more than anything in the 90s like bands like nirvana or the Pumpkins or Sonic Youth, whatever, there was probably a certain sound in the drums or guitars. Uh, and, you know, post-working with Green Day or the Foo Fighters or Garbage, I don't know. I, I'm not really aware of that. I like to think that Siamese Dream sounds like Smashing Pumpkins and never mind sounds like Nirvana and Dirty sounds like Sonic Youth. But uh, I'm sure there are sensibilities I bring that probably people hear. You know, I, I just, I don't know that I can necessarily pinpoint those. It's not a bad thing, though, I guess. There are some producers, especially in the 80s, who had a signature sound. They would put a stamp on people, and that was part of why you hired that producer, you know. Um, I, I hope that I'm a little bit more transparent than that. I was thinking very specifically Nirvana, you know, the difference between an album that you, you produce and, and, and Steve Albini, right? Like, you go to Steve Albini, you have a very specific idea, I think, of what you're getting out of a, a Steve Albini record for the most part, or he brings something very specific to the process. Do you get a sense of when people work with Butch Vig, what they're looking to get out of it? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I do know a lot of times I spend a lot of time discussing kind of what their vision is sonically, how they want a record to sound. And I'm always just worried. I want the 
songs to I just want the, the songs to be good and have some sort of emotional connection for for an audience I don't like I said earlier I don't really obsess too much over the snare drum sound or a specific bass drum sound or whatever that's sort of more about the overall big picture going back to Steve I mean I, I know Steve he's, he's a great engineer he, he won't call himself a producer um, but I know I can hear his records because he loves room mics with the ribbon mics with either Coles or Royers and his studio in Chicago is incredible um, I I did a session there with the Foo Fighters when we were doing Sonic Highways, and uh, I, I just loved that drum room that he designed. He's such a gearhead, and you put the drums in there, and they're foolproof. They sound killer, you know. But still, I can tell his records because I know the choice of microphones he's using. It's less about the production arrangement things, you know. I think he stays away from bringing that into the process. He'd rather the band make those decisions, and he's just making Sonic decisions. He's also a wicked poker player. You want to lose? You want to lose your money? Play some play some poker with Steve Albini. I'll wonder what what direction my 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 life has taken if I wake up one morning and I'm in Chicago playing poker against Steve <laughs> Albini. Like, a lot of interesting decisions would have had to have been made along the way. You mentioned this with regard to, specifically to the second garbage record that it was that it's easy to kind of pinpoint its sound in time you know obviously it, it it this can be difficult to do in the moment but are you actively generally trying to avoid production decisions that really put something in the moment you know in the way that like it's very easy to to pick out a you know an 80s new wave record because of the decisions that were made in studio yeah i mean i i can hear uh, over the decades, I can hear just production, how it changed, you know, records from the 50s into the 60s and the 70s. Everybody went to these dead studios in the in the 70s, and there wasn't very much low end. And then the 80s, they went to the really clicky kick drum with a lot of keyboards and this gigantic snare. That didn't make any sense to me. So it sounds like the bass drum is a, is a foot away from you, dry, completely dry, and the snare is back in that church back there, about 60 feet away, going boom. It's like drums don't sound like that, you know. And I can hear, you know, once uh, in the 90s, even prevalent these days, like a lot of the production in hip hop, I hear a lot of the same sort of keyboard sounds and drum. Auto-tune is just like inescapable Yeah, but I mean, now. but that's the tools that people use. And also a lot of artists like that sound, you know. So every every sort of genre of music and every decade has kind of its own unique sensibilities and it, when you're doing it in the moment i don't know that you're aware of it but when you get away from it like 10 or 20 years you can go back and go, oh yeah that's 1997 or that's 2003 or whatever you know you can hear sort of specific sounds or, or tricks that people would do in production but it's always going to be that way well tricks is a very it's an interesting way of putting it right because tricks suggests i don't know if it's necessarily a, a, a shortcut or maybe like a gimmick you know, kind of an, an active decision that that's that's being made. Are are those things that you generally try to avoid for the sake of not making something too dated? Are you conscious of whether or not you're making a record dated? You know, I'm not sure. I was speaking in, in an earlier interview today, and they were talking about the sound of the first garbage record. And honestly, to me, that record sounds bizarre. We recorded everything on tape, and then we ran everything into samplers and manipulated it, and then sent it back to tape, except for Shirley's vocal. Although a lot of some of Shirley's vocals, we, we like some of the do-do-do-do-do-do-do, were samples. We just play them on a keyboard. And it sounds weird to me. I, I don't, you know, it's just the process process that we did it there have been a few times where we've worked on something either with garbage or somebody else and go this sounds like it's not gonna it's just a production idea that probably will not sound so good down the line so you try to avoid it but it's not always easy to know that when you're in the moment you know sometimes everybody who has an idea thinks it's the greatest idea there is and uh 
it's hard to be objective. It's hard to, to say no, you know, when, when, when you're excited about something or excited about an idea. Did that first record sound weird to you at the time? Or is that something you figured out in hindsight? I guess it did to a certain extent because after mixing a lot of rock records, it just had sort of a different feel and how the low end and like a song like Vow was a mono kick and snare track with a hat. It's really, it's just, it wasn't 16 tracks of drums. It was sort of just this, I came up with a, a loop and it played some live drums on it and whatever it, but it just, it, it just got printed to one mono track. There was not multi, you know, I couldn't turn the kick drum or snare drum up. That's the way it was. And we just decided that sounds cool. Let's just leave it the way it is. And uh, you know, I probably wouldn't do that now i'd at least put the kick on one track and the snare on a second track so if i had to mix them up or down i could do that but we sort of approached that first record almost like remixing like just we wanted to have a if we found a track we would print it all the way through and then a lot of the songs we sort of define the arrangements by turning things off in the mix like we'd mute things in the verse or we'd bring things in the chorus or in the bridge we'd mute Thanks, him. And uh, so I guess that's one of the reasons that the record sounds sort of odd to me. Um, no, I, I think the record's great, but it doesn't sound like anything else at the time, you know. And I guess that's probably a good thing and a, maybe a bad thing. I don't know. I suspect that to some degree with, because you, you had, it sounds like you had absolutely no expectations for that first record or the bands when the band started. And I suspect that that's probably also the case with, you know, Five Billion Diamonds, even though obviously, you know, you're, you're a name and you're working with, with other names. Um, does that afford you the ability to try new stuff and to mess around with, with it if, you know, you have no expectations as far as whether or not anyone's ever going to hear this thing? Yeah, and, you know, in a way, um, I think that's a good thing. All artists should remember that. Uh, unfortunately, when you have a band or an artist that's got successful, there's a lot of pressure a lot of pressure to repeat that success and a lot of people will start bringing in their opinions and uh i think i've been pretty good in the past at shutting that out you know i always side with an artist i may have managers or publishers or label people telling me to do this or do that and i go yeah 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 okay but i I try to remember why i took on a project or why i'm working with a band in the first place and try to keep that focused if if that makes any sense in your own specific case when that first garbage record is a success in the way that it was is the pressure on yourselves to find a way to recapture that specific success yeah i mean after the success of the first record we wanted to take where we left off and push it higher we wanted to make the record bigger more widescreen um, make sure the songwriting was good the performances were good and wanted it to have kind of a high-tech feel that's one of the reasons we called it version 2.0 and it was sort of tongue-in-cheek it meant to be here's the newest software upgrade from garbage gym and so all, all those were very kind of deliberate decisions that we made but all of us felt pressure i mean i felt a ton of pressure making version 2.0 i i kind of felt like even making the first garbage record i felt like if it failed i was going to be the one who would have to answer to it but during the second record during version 2.0 i think all of us felt that and surely started to feel like you know now that we've established ourselves, there is more pressure, you know, to just to, to sort of live up to the standard that whatever that we had come up with on the first record. But I'm sort of used to that. I mean, I, you know, I've worked with some bands where they feel immense pressure with the Green Day following up American Idiot, a lot of pressure on them. Um, you know, when we went in to do the Who's Wasting Light, Dave said everybody's going to freak out because Butch Vig's working with Dave Grohl. I said, well, who cares? Let's just go make a record that we like. And, and uh, that's the only thing that matters. So you, you have to be able to shut that sort of 
outside pressure out, you know, although it'll drive you crazy otherwise. I suspect that the pressure that Green Day felt or the pressure that the Foo Fighters felt was different at that point in their respective careers, right? I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. When both of those albums were recorded, they had already had a, a you know, a, a fair amount of success up to that point. The pressure is very different between the first and second record. Yeah, nobody wants a sophomore slump. You know, we in Garbage, we did not want a sophomore slump. But there's no guarantee that, you know, um, you can write the best songs in the world and have the production great and have a record company behind you but the music industry is fickle and people's tastes change so whatever you do you can't second guess what the public is going to want six months from now or a year from now you just have to you have to make music that you love you know that you feel um, you can honestly go I, I, I made this record and I really believe in it because if you if you do it for expectations of success you're you're doing it for the wrong reasons i respect that and 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 certainly that's the case you know a lot of musicians i talk to a lot of musicians i have in the show are kind of at a certain level right they're like there's a certain level of indie rock success you know where it's like yeah we're doing really well for where we are we're not really expecting to have a big radio hit and and the pressure has changed there but again i i suspect that given given your track record given the fact that you're you know working with all of these big bands on major labels i mean there must there has to be some pressure in your life. There has to be some pressure for there to be success. So how, how do you how do you balance or how do you kind of reconcile those those two things? Well, when I take on a project, uh, I kind of immerse myself in it. I'm not a good multitasker. I can't do like three or four records at once, you know, work on this track with one artist, listen to a mix here, do some songwriting here. I have to sort of get into it so I feel like it's becoming part of my DNA and really understand the songs and the performances and I'm aware of how the band is perceived or the artist is perceived so there are certain things certain decisions I may lean to uh, if I think it could help a song sound better or whatever but if it feels like it's untrue to the artist then I won't do it you know so and, and part of that pressure is from A&R people saying oh we need back vocals in the chorus or you need to put a string section in here. And it's so idiotic for people to say that. Of course, you can say that about any song you can hear and go, let's put strings in the bridge, whatever. I'm saying that with a really fakey British accent, by the way. It's terrible. So you just have to kind of be able to look at it objectively and, and try to remember what, what the vision is that the band wants and then and just do the, you know, do the work at it and try to make the best record you can. One of the things that I've realized in, in life is that most people spend most of their time at their jobs justifying their jobs to other people. And I suspect <laughs> that, that like A&R people maybe specifically or, you know, some some other label people, they're kind of like, oh, by the way, like this is, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who suggested backing vocals <laughs> to Butch for this record. And, 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 and I assume in a lot of cases, it just must be suggestions for suggestions sake. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, the, sometimes the bigger the artist, um, or not even an artist, like you talk about TV or film, there's so many people, so many executive producers and whatever. I, I've gotten calls from people who give me suggestions and when I've been working on music for a film, I don't even know who they are, you know? And they go, we, we need you to do this and this. You know, go, okay, well, did the director want that? Well, the producer wants it to be this way. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, that's a different thing with film and TV because ultimately, if I'm involved with making the music, it's not my music. It's not my band. It's there. So I understand that. But um, when people start doing that with artists, I feel like they're treading on you know thin ice because it's uh, at the end of the day, it's the artist who has to answer to the failure or success of, of that work. You know, the, the people who are giving you opinions, they are probably trying to justify their job 
And uh, as, as I said, the bigger the corporation, the more people who seem to be floating around, you're never quite sure what they do. But um, you sort of have to be able to figure that out, you know, figure out who to avoid and and who to trust. I, I worked with this one band. I don't want to say who they were, but their manager was an incredible meddler. He just... Micromanager. Micromanaged everything. Like, I, you know, I'd be in the studio till like 2. I'd be dead asleep. The phone would ring at 7. Butch, I need to talk to you about this. And I'd go, I mean, oh, man, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then after a while, the band started saying, oh, man, the, I'd say your manager's coming by. they go, oh, not the vibe crusher. And, and the, you know, the band would be calling their manager... Uh, a vibe crusher. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm just going to try to avoid him as much as I can. Do you have opportunity to work with younger artists? Do you have Do you have opportunity to work with people like really when their careers are just starting out? I do, but most of it's been um, just giving them feedback. Um, you know, listening to songs, talking about production and things. Um, and I like doing that. If I feel like I if I can help them in some way, and they want to send me tracks to listen to, and I haven't taken on that many new artists like in the last three or four years. Do you get a sense of why? I feel like every time I'm busy. Like uh, garbage has been touring a lot over the last three or four years. Uh, we just finished a record, and I, I sort of have to have the a big chunk of time and. and to commit to a project like like that, unless I'm doing like a, a track, you know, a track or two versus doing a whole record. But I, I like getting involved with people. I do it actually all the time. I get, I'll get a call and say, well, you listen to the song and can I talk to you about the arrangement or what you think I need? And I, I, I find that interesting because then it also allows me to hear something and be pretty objective about it because I'm not that involved in the process. I can listen and go, well, I love this. In fact, some, sometimes I'll hear a track and go, I don't know what I would do with this. This sounds so good, you shouldn't F it up. Just properly mix this and get it out. And they go, thanks, that's all I needed to hear. Sometimes it's nice to just have somebody who knows what they're talking about tell you that you're on the right track or doing the right thing. That pressure that we're talking about, you know, the pressure that you felt with Garbage initially, obviously there's a lot of bands that are just like side projects and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it or just a project of this producer or musician. In the case of something like Five Billion in Diamonds is that, is that a case where pressure exists in the same way to for that project to be successful or at that kind of project at this point in your career? Is it something that you feel like you can just kind of have fun with? Well, Five Billion of Diamonds is definitely a labor of love. You know, I started the band with two of my good friends in the UK, and it, it came out of our love for film, music, and obscure 60s and 70s, like psychedelic folk rock albums, John Barry, uh, his scores, Dario Gento. And we initially were just writing music, and then when we had a bunch of the tracks on the first record, we decided, let's bring some singers in, see what we can do with these. And that was a bit of a daunting process, because we didn't have a clear vision, and it took a while to get the singers who we asked on board to find their way to fit, you know, how they fit into a song. And when we're done with the record, even while we were promoting it, when it came out, we already had started writing music for this record, for Divine Accidents, and Taylor writing songs tailor made for each singer mm. like Andy and I write most of the music James Grillo is not a musician he's a DJ and he's got a massive record collection he's got like 20,000 pieces of vinyl or something and he's very opinionated and in some ways he sort of steers the band sonically you know in terms of what should be in a song and arrangement but it's very much a labor of love all the musicians who we have brought on board we want to feel like we have some connection with them there are people who we thought about bringing on board to sing and realized we don't want to work with 
vibe crushers. You know, we don't want to work with bummers in the studio. This the, the band is so much fun. Making the record is fun. All the musicians, we give them a lot of leeway, whether it's the rhythm section or Al on guitar or Damien from the undertones on guitar and all the singers. And, and everybody loves that. I mean, I think they like being part of the process that uh, it gives them a chance to sort of spread their wings and try things that they maybe wouldn't be able to do in another with another band. Garbage has been around for a long time. And the musical environment, let's, let's just say, has like shifted quite a bit since the early days, you know, in terms of uh, radio, things like that. Um, at this point in the band's career, is there pressure to have success in the same way that, you know, I, I, I assume that that's changed to some degree? over the years i think after our first four records when we took a break and we all thought it would be like a year off or so it spilled into whatever six or seven years it was before uh, not your kind of people came out when we put the last couple records out um strange little birds and not your kind of people on our own label we didn't feel beholden to anyone we could pick the single we could sequence the record we could put exactly the songs we wanted on there i think we realized that we were lucky to have found an audience when we did because our fans sort of allow us to do what we want to do, and they're, a lot of them are going to come out and see us when we play live. Obviously, we don't we don't sell CDs anymore like we used to, but we still you know we have a, a a huge fan base that really loves what we do, and we're very very appreciative of that. But because of that, they let us sort of get away with murder. You know, we just kind of do our own thing, and, and I, I it's the best thing in the world to to be able to do that. You know, um, any pressure that comes comes from the four of us, you know, arguing amongst ourselves, like, what should it sonically sound like? You know, what are we trying to say? What is Shirley's lyrics? Where is she going with this? And that's cool, because when it's done, it's been birthed by the four of us, and then we just put it out there with no expectations. You know, there are people who are going to hear a new record and hate it. There are people who I think are going to love it. And for better or for worse, it sounds like garbage. Everybody has their own type projects. They, you know, everybody has their their own lives now, you know, I assume, I know you've got, you've got kids. I assume a lot of them have kids and, but is there always an expectation that there is going to be another record? I usually think that it's like, I just, you know, I'm going to keep making music until I can't. And, uh, like I said, I don't have any hobbies. I, so there's nothing else to do. So I also, when I finish a record, I don't really sit around and listen to it. Um, it takes me about six months to get away from it, and, and if I hear it again, I go, "Oh, I can appreciate the songwriter, the production, or whatever." I'm already mo- I've already moved on to the next thing, and I think a lot of artists are that that particular way. They move forward. You know, you you're always looking to something to do next. Uh, n- not too many musicians I know sort of sit around and pat themselves on the back after they finish something. It's like they're constantly restless in terms of. Uh, trying to figure out where they're going to go next. You have the sense that for as long as you're able to make music and, and for as long as the rest of the band is able to meet, make music, that Garbage is going to continue to record new records? I think so. We, you know, we may be heading out on stage in wheelchairs, but damn it, we're going to do it. <laughs> 